0: Hey guys, let me tell you about some of the new scents you can pick up over at Fable Beard Company, the official beard products of the American History Podcast. It's July, it's the height of summer, and what's better than some patriotic products like one of their latest creations, the American Soaring Freedom? The scent profile of this one is smoked gunpowder, aged woods, light cologne, and vanilla musk. Or perhaps you'd prefer the slugger. Nothing says summertime like baseball. This one features a profile of cracked cedar baseball bats, warm tobacco leaves, and cracker jacks. I just got this one a week ago, and it's quickly moving up my list of favorites. So head on over to fablebeardco.com and get yourself some of the best products you can find for your beard or even the hair on your head. As always, they come in a beard oil, beard butter, beard wash, and a conditioner. And the conditioner is so good, I actually use it on my dogs. And I tell you, their fur has never been better It's never felt better, and it's never looked better. And of course, don't forget, use coupon code SHAWN15 for 15% off each and every single order. That's S-H-A-W-N, the number 15. Okay, let's get into the show. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Worswick. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, today we are interviewing Dr. Patrick Newman and discussing his book Cronyism: Liberty versus Power in Early America, sixteen oh seven through eighteen forty-nine. Now, Dr. Newman is an assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern College. And his primary research interests are in Austrian economics, monetary theory, and late 19th and early 20th century American economic history. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. So let's, um, let's just get started. What, what led you to write this book? I mean, obviously, you've got research interests in, in this area, but um, you're an economics or an economist by trade or training So when I saw this, I was just really fascinated that an economist is writing a history book (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I, that, that, that's a great question. Um, I enjoy history. I've always enjoyed history, even before I was interested in economics. I have an economics PhD. I, I, teach, eco, you know, I, I teach economics courses. Uh, I try to incorporate as much history as possible in them. Uh, a lot of my research is, has dealt with history, especially history that Murray Rothbard, uh, a, a famous Austrian and libertarian economist, uh, touched on. So I edited uh, his uh, The Progressive Era and the fifth volume of Conceived in Liberty. Um, As a result of that, a donor um, of the Mises Institute, or I am a fellow of, uh, it, it asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book on the history of crony capitalism in the United States. So I immediately jumped at the opportunity. This is something that really interested me. And I started to do more and more research. And as I was doing more research writing the book, I decided that, well, I want to uh, just concentrate for now on early American history uh, because I wanted to tell a particular story there and save the rest of history for subsequent books, such as the one I'm working on right now. So it really grew out of a uh, a, a research grant, and it's been something that I've been focusing on uh, ever since um, when this research grant was given, which was about- 2019 and i've just been really focusing on the history of crony capitalism
0: nice nice and that's good to know that there's another uh, volume in the works because it's it's a great read um it, it's really well written um, one of the things i was going to say is I, I like um how clearly written the book is but um i also like the way you frame the argument so i wanted to talk about that because sometimes uh, i'm a historian by training and i know that that historians mm, were not always the best of writers And sometimes we don't articulate kind of the framework that we're using um, to set up our argument very well. But I mean, you just it's really concise and clear. So I wanted you to maybe explain to the listener um, what is your theoretical framework?
1: Sure. So I'm trying to explain cronyism, and I define this as policies that benefit special interests at the expense of the public. All right. So we think about something. Of the, you know, the nature of a protective tariff, right, which benefits um, manufacturing companies at the expense of consumers uh, and other purchases of the uh, of the product. Right. Yeah. So I'm trying to explain cronies of an early America. I explain cronyism, right, so peri- why periods, uh, Why, excuse me, why there are periods of special interest legislation, um, why special interest legislation is increasing more in some periods than others, why it's declining, using what I call the liberty versus power theory, right? So I this theory uh, has three components, all right? First, um, the theory argues that uh, history is a clash between the forces of liberty in the forces of power. So the forces of liberty are the proponents of small government. They're against cronyism. Uh, they're for decentralization, uh, liberty, individualism, so on and so forth. The forces of power are for greater government control, uh, coercion. They're in favor of big government cronyism and so on. All right. So in uh, early America, you had a significant part of the population that was actually in favor of reducing special privileges. So this liberty uh, force, so to speak, was not just a fringe third party movement as it is now, but it was actually um, or, you know, it was actually large enough to uh, influence uh, major policies, uh, elections, win elections and so on. Right. So that's the first component. History is a clash between the forces of liberty and the forces of power. Mm-hmm. Um and the, uh, the 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 building on this is that well, when the forces of liberty are in control of the government, cronyism declines. When the forces of power are in control of the government, cronyism increases. Okay, fair enough. Well, the second um, uh, point is that well, power corrupts, right? So power corrupts the forces of liberty. When they take control of the government, they aren't as radical as they seemed when they were trying to get in uh, into office, right? So they lose some of the radicalism. They lose some of the reform-oriented nature. They start to moderate. They say, well, we have to look out for the next election. Well, we have to look out for our constituents, their own special interests, and so on. So cronyism only declines or remains the same, right? Then after time, cronyism starts to increase because the, um, the, 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 the forces of liberty and control of the government now get corrupted, right? The, the third component is that um, reform is difficult precisely because power corrupts. So it's really hard to reform the government because the main agency for reform, having people ride into office, uh, institute various policies – that are going to remove special interest, uh, you know, legislation and so on, uh, has a sort of a a built-in mechanism to prevent its own demise, right? Yeah. So that's the overarching theory I'm using.
0: Excellent, excellent. Um, and I, that's basically just like how you said it in the intro, and it's it's so succinct, it's hard to miss, right? I, um, you just come out right that nice and clear. Um, so thank you for that. This is um now this leads me to. Kind of my next question, and that's talking about the war for independence. Um, and that's kind of, you know, obviously it's just after July 4th, so it's that time of the year. People are thinking about this. Um, and you mentioned or you framed the, the war, I should say, as a libertarian one in nature, and then kind of the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution as sort of a counter revolution, or, or not maybe sort of, but actual a counter revolution against
1: that. So, wanted you to speak about that for just a moment. Yeah, uh, sure. So that's a that, that's a, a, a very timely question, given as you mentioned, we've just had the Fourth of July. So I argue that the American Revolution it was this great triumph of liberty uh, because the colonists seceded, right? That's what we think of. It's 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 the the the, the Revolutionary War. Uh, it was is really a, a war of secession, right? The, the colonies they decided um, to secede form their own independent governments uh, states as they were called and uh, this is a this is a really effective strategy a really effective reform strategy because really most reform that is successful is only possible through things such as nullification or secession you're not actually trying to change the government you're just trying to break away from the government right yeah uh, so this American Revolution happens right, where we got the uh, Declaration of Independence in 1776, et cetera, et cetera. But not all the uh, Americans, not all the American colonists were fighting for the same objectives. You had the, uh, the libertarians, as I call them. So guys such as Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee. Uh, I'll throw uh, Thomas Jefferson in there as well. Um, George Mason and, and, and uh, Sam Adams and so on. All right, so you got a good sprinkling of people from Massachusetts and Virginia, um, and then you have the uh, the, the reactionaries, so to speak, or these are kind of the American forces of power, guys such as Robert Morris, Gouverneur Morris, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, uh, so on and so forth. Probably some names that your average person isn't as familiar with, and they wanted to break away. From Great Britain, or initially they didn't want to break away, but once they finally decided to break away, uh, they said, Well, we don't want to have a limited government uh, at home. We're not, not really rebelling against the British Empire per se, we're just rebelling against an empire that we don't control. So <laughs> they wanted to institute the exact same, very similar uh, type of system that had plagued the colonies. Uh, you know, since their founding, when Britain was trying to impose mercantilism um, and so on and so forth. And they tried to do this first through the Articles of Confederation, which bound the independent states together. Um, the Articles of Confederation gave the central government various uh, powers over the military, over finances, uh, We chartered our first central bank under the Articles, et cetera. The one uh, strength of the Articles, I would say, which is what everyone would call a flaw of the Articles, is that it lacked taxing power. But it still was a centralizing document. And then this failed for a variety of reasons during the Revolutionary War. Um, And afterwards, the exact same proponents of the Articles of Confederation and a stronger central government during the war, Robert Morris and so on, they pushed for a constitution, a new government to supplant the articles in the mid-1780s. And that's the United States Constitution, which I argue is very crony, facilitated a lot of the desires of the forces of power or the the nationalists, as they should really be called, um, uh, during this time period.
0: That's excellent. And um, now one of the things that comes up is during this time period, and you talk a lot about it, is the in 1780s, is the issue of debt, right? And what were they going to do with it? Now, so my question is moving a little more contemporaneously um, because debt's obviously on our minds, inflation, um, you see it all the time now. Um, but it seems that we're in kind of a similar situation today. We've got a ton of debt, there are serious doubts as to whether, you know, we are going to be able to pay off. It's what, about $30 trillion, give or take, depending on who you ask. Um, can that ever be paid off? And um, one of the choices that they could have made in the 1780s that you mentioned in the book is they could just simply default or refuse to pay the debt. Um, what would have been the, the consequences of that then? And I wonder because I've, I've heard some people say it, you know, maybe we should just repudiate the debt. Who cares? We, um, we, we owe it to ourselves anyways. What would be the ramifications of that today?
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: I'm Michael Seavers, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B 26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose, the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: So that's a that's a very important question because this issue of debt does play a you might say predominant role um, in the drive for a stronger uh, government during this time period, so to back up a little bit, during the Revolutionary War, the federal government or the Continental Congress, as well as various state governments, they printed a bunch of money uh, to finance the war, and they also issued various debt instruments to finance the war. So, if they needed to pay soldiers or farmers, they would give them, uh, you know, a, a debt instrument. Um, we can call them bonds if we want, and say, "All right, we'll pay you in the future. Uh, we'll pay you through taxes we'll raise later, or something of something of that nature." Right. Yeah. So this debt was originally uh, concentrated in the hands of the the people fighting for the revolution. What happened is, well, the the various governments, they printed way too much money, so the currency depreciated. That was allowed to pass out of existence. The debt instruments also looked increasingly shaky. So a lot of the farmers, merchants, soldiers, they sold them on the secondary market. They sold them to speculators. They said, well, uh, I'm not going to hold this for three years um, and, and wait for uh, Massachusetts to maybe redeem it. Uh, Instead, I'm just going to sell it right now to um, a a speculator who will buy it. These speculators, um, which cannot be emphasized enough, were generally associated with Robert Morris. They uh, favored big government. They favored a stronger government. And these were the same people that once they had this debt or while they were accumulating this debt, they were lobbying various governments to raise taxes to fund this debt. Right. So they were buying them at highly depreciated rates uh, from um, you know, the, the soldiers, et cetera. And they had wanted to then turn around and, and get the government to fund this debt with new taxes, which would be levied mainly on the poor. Right? So this was a, a, a big issue during this time period. And a lot of historians say that, well, Articles of Confederation didn't have the taxing power. They weren't going to be able to fund any of their debts. Uh, we had to have a stronger government because how else were you going to fund these debts? Governments have to fund their obligations, et cetera. I argue, building off of other historians, that you don't actually need, you know, this, this argument isn't, it assumes too much. It assumes that, well, the government debt is just uh, sacrosanct. It's just like a private transaction, right? When in reality, it's not. Private transactions are voluntary. Uh, government transactions ultimately rely on some form of force. In this case, taxes used to fund the debt. So uh, there were various people arguing that, well, we should just default, um, which is we, we cut down on our debt, we, we only make some payments on our debt, or repudiate, which is we just completely cancel the debt contract. Mm-hmm. Um, various states such as Virginia had defaulted. Some states were printing money to uh, fund this debt which was their way of defaulting, right, because they just said that, OK, this is going to—this money is going to um, th- th- this gonna be worthless, and so it's it's more or less their way of, of defaulting. Uh, other states, were such as Massachusetts, were raising very uh, high taxes uh, on its population. Um, so I argue that, well, you—the anti—what the, I what were known as the anti-federalists, the forces of small government, were right. We should really just default or repudiate on the debt uh, because most of the debt— was in the hands of speculators. So it wasn't even in the hands of the original people, the soldiers who, quote, risked life and limb uh, to, 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 to get their country um, uh, its independence, right? So it wasn't even in their hands. Uh, and the other thing is also would have weakened government's abilities to borrow in the future. A lot of historians, economists consider this um, a, a, a downside. I actually consider it a strength, because I say it would have made it harder for governments to embark upon various uh, big government policies that lead to higher deficits and so on, the United States has only been able to accumulate such a large debt, right? If you think of the modern era, precisely because it has such a good rating, right? It's 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 very rarely defaulted, so it's been able to accumulate thirty trillion dollars of debt, as you said, over the years because, uh, uh, be, be, it, you know, it, it, it's it's so credit worthy, so. If we were to default or repudiate our debt in the modern era, right, just concentrating on government debt, not on private debt, that's a completely different animal. Yeah. I think this would have several beneficial effects, um, the first one being the the one I mentioned earlier, which is that it would make it harder for governments to borrow.
0: And that probably would not be a bad thing when one considers just how much $30 trillion. I mean, that's, that's insane. Most of that's just over the last... Um, 20 years, cause if, if I remember correctly, when Bush came in office, the national debt was something like, and I'm talking Bush. The second was around five or $6 trillion. And, you know, it, it, I think he just about doubled it. And then it almost doubled again. And now, gosh, just in the last four years or so, it's, it's just ballooned. Right. So, um, maybe not letting these guys, uh, borrow would be a good thing. Um, now we are talking, as I said earlier, to pa- Dr. Patrick Newman, talking about his book *Cronyism: Liberty Versus Power in America, 1607 to 1849*. And um, moving from now, we've got um, one of the fascinating aspects of this book is um, the period that you describe between the ratification of the Constitution and around 1790. I think you called it um, that little section, something like um, Prime Minister Madison. And that's a period that that I mean, I've taught you history just regular U.S. history, but I've also taught at the college level and um, the AP version. And no matter where you teach it or who's teaching it, it seems like that period kind of gets brushed over big time. You know, it's like we get the Constitution and then George Washington's president and everything's fine up until Adams and, you know, the XYZ affair and all that. This time period, though, gets brushed over. So um, what can you tell us about this period? Because I found it fascinating. Yeah.
1: It's a a very important period. I agree with you. I think it gets brushed over. I think the 1780s gets get brushed over completely. Uh, We just sort of usually how history is presented. It's well, there's the revolution, and then the Articles didn't work, and we got this Constitution, and then we're off to the races. Uh, But uh, it's actually a very important period in American history. It sort of provides the foundation for almost everything else that happens after it. So. I called the section um, Prime, Min- Prime Minister uh, James Madison, right? Um, I, I call him Prime Minister James Madison because right now James Madison is a congressman, right? He he um, he barely won election to the House of Representatives. He's a congressman, and the year is 1789, so it's our first congress. Congressmen are starting to trickle in. We're just trying to get the, the the basics of the government off the ground, sort of breathe some life into the Constitution, fill out some offices, et cetera. And James Madison is is very important in this. He plays a very important role in raising tariffs or getting Congress to pass tariff uh, and, and tonnage legislation to raise money. Um, he's very important in getting a bill of rights off the ground to sort of disarm anti-federalists, Passing a, you know, getting Congress to pass a, 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 in the states uh, a weak Bill of Rights instead of the strong Bill of Rights anti Federalists wanted that had structural amendments, uh, also created the Supreme Court, um, you know, Madison pushing for legislation or assisting with that, Judiciary Act, so on and so forth. This first Congress. Um, which is recently the subject of a new book, or relatively recent by Fergus Bordowich, I believe is his name, uh, really um, provides a lot of the foundation, as I've mentioned, for future policy. And Madison is really taking a proactive um, uh, approach. right? He's working with George Washington. He's kind of being a major mover and shaker. So he's sort of a prime minister, if you will. Right. We, of course, in America, American government, we don't have prime ministers, but I think early on, several people sort of were prime ministers or acted as them. The most notable one, really the the only one aside from Madison, is Alexander Hamilton, who takes the position of secretary of the Treasury um, late in the year and right off the gate he starts pushing for all sorts of policies that alienate Madison and he kind of uh, supplants Madison as now the major mover and shaker right but so this this early period the set early 1790s late 1780s i think is absolutely fascinating it's a shame historians don't talk about it more
0: yeah it really does get short shrift and i mean i think there's a, a a phrase and i'm probably paraphrasing it here in that section where you're talking about how, you know, you're getting a cabinet kind of put together in this government, but you know, there's there's nobody there really. And it just, it's so fascinating when you think about it, that you could be, you know, Alexander Hamilton, your secretary of the treasury, but there's like nobody really working for you yet. Um, and how all that gets constructed, I think, by blowing over it and just kind of going off to the races, like you said, just, it really does, short change that story of how all of this came together um and it it's it's fascinating to say the least um so moving forward um now when we teach us history again we refer to the time around the war of 18 actually let me back up you mentioned thomas jefferson's revolution before i get to that question in the book and um let's talk about thomas jefferson's revolution was because he gets painted by and I'm probably guilty of having done this as being this kind of pro
1: liberty guy but you complicate that a little bit yeah so uh, the, the the thomas jefferson question i think thomas jefferson is a pro liberty guy i think he was great he was a great libertarian with rhetoric great libertarian in writing great libertarian when he, when he was not in office right? bingo bingo uh, when he was in office when he served as president, uh, He really an office in position of power. He, w- he was vice president you know, in the 1790s, but no one cares about the vice president. Um, <laughs> um, he, he, he started to moderate, right? Uh, he started to moderate. He started to pursue various special interest policies at the end of his first administration and definitely in the second administration, uh, really, the, the liberty versus power theory that I I, I I described at the beginning of this podcast, the, this idea of well, uh, when the forces of liberty win, government should get smaller, but actually, power corrupts the reformers uh, into moderation and then into outright cronyism. That is literally Thomas Jefferson's career, um, there, you know, in, 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 in the period under study. I mean, he's really the the main one who um, best. Uh, encapsulates this this liberty versus power uh, theory. And the the basic issue for Thomas Jefferson is that his Republican Party, which is battling the Hamiltonian Federalists in the 1790s, the Hamiltonians are the cronies, uh, the Republicans technically have no affiliation with the modern day Republican Party. They're the libertarians. Uh, They're in favor of getting rid of of the uh, uh, First Bank of the United States, free trade, small government, not interventionist foreign policy, uh, blah, 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 all, all the good stuff, all the stuff we, we know and love. Yeah. It was really a, a combi- combination or a coalition of two forces. On the one hand, uh, you had the anti-federalists, the people who originally fought the Constitution. Uh, they formed the main group of the Republicans. and so They give it sort of its ideological drive and its the clarity, the overall thrust of the movement. Uh, on the other hand, you have these uh, ex-federalists right such as James Madison and and they're upset at Hamilton uh, and the Federalist Party not necessarily for cronyism but just for giving cronyism to the wrong period uh, to the wrong people or just sort of dishing out uh, crony policies of the wrong people. so you had a lot of southern Federalists uh, who were upset that Hamilton's policies were mainly benefiting uh, the northern states so okay. they kind of join with this, anti-federalist coalition formed the Republican Party by the time Jefferson rolls into office in 1801 he's he's got to deal with these two groups and you've got people such as James Madison is the ex-federalist and you've got people such as John Randolph uh, and John Taylor uh, these are the, um, the 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 radical uh, Republicans or maybe called old Republicans and Jefferson, he initially sort of tries to play both, you know, tries to appease both sides, and then he just leans more and more uh, into favoring the moderates because his Secretary of State, which back in the day was really a stepping stone into the presidency, was of course James Madison. And this is the this is the the, the trajectory of Thomas Jefferson. And really, by by the time of uh, when he when he leaves office, he's pursuing all sorts of terrible policies in his republican parties pursuing all sorts of terrible policies during the war of 1812 and then after the war um, it, with the remainder of the 1810s and 1820s until he dies in 1826 i want to say he kind of becomes a, a a good hardcore libertarian again and uh, he sort of kind of admits that well his his plan didn't go the way he wanted to the republican party got you know, um, it it was, it was, uh, left adrift, so to speak. Uh, but Thomas Jefferson is a classic example of how power can corrupt, uh, good intentioned, uh, reformers into moderation. Yeah. Well-intentioned. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He had all the great intentions, but you know, once you get there, it's hard to fight all of that. Right. Um, now my next, my question that I had meant to get to was, um, the, the era of good feelings when we, Teach U.S. history that kind of period after the War of eighteen twelve or so, up until the mid eighteen twenties that we refer to as the, the era of good feelings. Again, you kind of complicate that that whole term, and um, I just wanted to get you you to talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this 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 part of of my book on the era of good feelings, which I really call the era of corruption, yeah, uh, is is one of my um, the more one of my favorite. Uh, parts of my book. I I really enjoyed writing it and researching, etc. Usually the era of good feelings to the extent uh, students even know it at all. It's the 1820s. It's kind of a placeholder between, all right, you've got the War of 1812, and then you've got Jackson in the 1830s. So we need something before then. And well, there there is only one, uh, at least the way the traditional reasoning goes. Well, uh, at this time, there's only one political party, um, the Republican Party, which are really just known as the National Republicans, the, the Federalists, were all but dead. They were a minority party. Um, they, they, they were basically just uh, stuck in New England. The National Republicans were calling the shots. You had James Monroe um, and then uh, John Quincy Adams. And so everyone was just getting along. Uh, everyone was happy. There was no political strife. There was no other turbulence, et cetera. And uh, the, the reverse is, is, is true. Uh, there was actually intense political strife because there was all sorts of squabbling among the national Republicans. Um, they were all trying to implement the American system, or at least Henry Clay was, but this was leading to various disagreements. You had the Panic of 1819, which is a very serious business cycle um, that uh, led to a short-lived depression, but still this depression kind of re-energize the forces of monetary reform, supporters of hard money, and so on. Um, And most important of all, you had an intense amount of cronyism or the corrupt politicians. They were um, taking things from the government. They were uh, trying to push for policies that would benefit themselves, Uh, central banking, protective tariffs, internal improvements. Uh, the most infamous example of this is the so-called uh, corrupt bargain of, um, of 1820 1825, basically when, when Clay and uh, Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams, they agreed to um, uh, support each other, and Clay would swing the um, overtime House election for the president. In 1824 uh, to Adams, right, instead of Jackson. So this was seen as well. Politicians are basically just horse trading for favors. Uh, this is really bad uh, and, and so on. And in this period, this, this uh, era of corruption led to the Jacksonian reform movement of the 1830s, which I argue was really America's only successful libertarian reform movement when they were actually able to dismantle large parts of the federal government. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, now my last question for you.
0: Um, finally is you end the book in 1849. Now uh, and I'm just wondering cuz you know people wonder like well why 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 that date was was there something particularly important then or you know did you look at the paper, the the page count and you're like okay I think I'm done for now. I mean, why that date in particular?
1: Yeah, that's 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 a great question. I've been I've been asked this. Um, I, I, <laughs> um, I have some people joke. They say, oh, I wanted a book on cronyism. They went to 1850. <laughs> so I guess this isn't what I'm looking for or something like that, right? Um, yeah, so the the reason why I ended in 1849 was because I, I don't want to give away the story uh, too much, but that's really the collapse of the Jacksonian coalition and the collapse of the Democratic Party, which is the same Democratic Party of today, but when it was originally founded by Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren, uh, it was a, a small government party dedicated to reform dedicated to dismantling the American system, all this great stuff. Jacksonians weren't perfect by, by, any, by any means, but uh, they, they got a lot of stuff done. The problem is that, well, power corrupted them. Uh, what corrupted Jefferson was the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, what corrupted the Jacksonians was Texas and the Southwest that Mexico held. And so this Mexican war that uh, President James K. Polk pursued was very divisive. It uh, alienated um, a, a lot of Democrats, or later, later on did. It really um, uh, pushed the Democrats into embracing internal improvements, uh, national debt alliances with bankers, and all this stuff. So the election of 1848 is really where I end the book. And I just briefly talk about it where I say that, well, both parties— are now in favor of big government, only um, uh, different types of big government. And that's really kind of true for the rest of American history. There there are some times in the late late 19th century, the late 1800s, when the Democratic Party um, under Grover Cleveland is trying to pursue some free market policies um, but even then, uh, the Bourbon Democrats, as they were called, were sort of a uh, just only a, a relative, um, you know, minority in their own party. Um, and afterwards, you know, then the Democratic Party became very similar to the Democratic Party of of today. Uh, but the the Liberty versus Power theory that I used to describe cronyism in early America no longer really applies because you don't have that. Libertarian contingent, or these group of reformers that are actually um, have have enough uh, people on their side to actually make effective change. Instead, all you have is just these various groups of power, right? The, the, these factions of power that are are trying to uh, pursue their own special interest policies and deny special interest policies to other groups, right? So I wanted to end the book there because that way write a second book, which I am doing now, I can focus on um, uh, d- you know different things in the United States or, or really I can use a different theory and focus more on the cronyism and rather on the uh, particular forces in favor of increasing or reducing cronyism. Excellent,
0: excellent. Well, for those who are listening, I really, really recommend this book. Um, I think you guys will enjoy it it's kind of the perfect book for this time of the year and i will most definitely include a link in the show notes page where you can pick yourself up a copy and like i said just a moment ago we've been talking to dr patrick newman um, about his book cronyism liberty versus power in early america 1607 to 1849 dr newman thank you so much for joining us today
1: yeah and thanks for having me on it was an absolute pleasure
0: awesome And for uh, those listening, just go check out the show notes page and you will find the book link there. All right. Thank you very much. Y'all have a good day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at MadOctopusMedia.com.